Well, good morning. You're turning your Bible to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 29. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, for faithfully stewarding your responsibility to lead us in worship through song, preparing us for the preaching of the word. For context, we're going to look at verse 12, then we will expound on that, verses 13 to 29. John 8, verse 12, that we looked at last week. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we gather here this morning because we have been enlightened by the light of the world. As the Apostle Paul write, the God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Father, now we desire to understand even more the implications of what it means to walk in the light and the consequences of refusing to walk in the light and remaining in darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In May of 2003, after I took my first pastorate, which was in northern Cincinnati, Heather and I got an apartment there right next to Kings Island Amusement Park. Now, I was really excited about that because Kings Island Amusement Park had a lot of history that I was aware of and very interested in. For, for instance, uh, I was a Partridge family uh, fan, fan growing up. And on two different episodes, they, they sang at Kings Island Amusement Park. In fact, Johnny Bench showed up in one of those episodes. And then I was a Brady Bunch fan. And they went to Kings Island, and Mike Brady lost his his architecture plans, if you remember that. I was also an Evil Knievel fan. And Evil Knievel had his last jump at Kings Island Amusement Park. And so I was really excited about having an apartment right next to Kings Island until I wasn't. The first night we were there, I was holding Ella. She was eight months old. And all of a sudden, I started hearing what was apparently bombs going off outside the apartments. And so I jumped into the floor, into a fetal position, and and held Ella underneath me. Turns out it was fireworks show, Kings Island. Found out the next morning that they had that fireworks show every night at 10 p.m. I said, well, at least I'll be prepared next time. Well, the second night, those fireworks went off again, and again, I, was, I didn't jump to the floor this time, but it startled me, and it angered me. And I said something to Heather that was not the most brilliant thing I've ever said. I said, why don't they shoot those fireworks off at 10 in the morning rather than 10 at night? People are trying to rest. Well, the answer is obvious. 
You cannot appreciate the light of the fireworks without the darkness. Do you realize that's why the Lord Jesus Christ is not seen in our world for who he is? The light of the world. You see, the evil one, Paul says, comes as an angel of light. He makes dark things look like bright and good things. He deceives us into exchanging, as Isaiah 5.20 uh, says, darkness for light and light for darkness. And in that deception, and it is a, a, a spiritual deception, a demonic deception, we cannot, indeed we will not appreciate Jesus for who he is, the light of the world. Remarkably, that's where the most religious people in the world are, the Pharisees. There is no one who's ever walked the planet any more moral or any more religious than the Pharisees. And even though they were highly pious, their self-righteousness was just another subtle expression of darkness. Darkness comes in many forms. Darkness came in the form of the elder brother, if you'll remember in Jesus' parable, as much as it came in the form of the prodigal son. Of course, these Pharisees are not alone. That is our natural condition. And hence, as we just read in verse 12, Jesus' admonition here as he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Uh, the implication there is if you don't follow him, you will walk in darkness, even if you're moral, even if you're religious, even if you're committed to all things church. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Now, we saw last week that this is a scandalous verse, a, a, a scandalous profession on the part of Jesus. So we saw last week that in John 6, he's, he depicts himself as the bread of life. In other words, the manna in the wilderness that God gave his people in that time between their redemption and their inheritance, Jesus says, that points to me. In John 7, we saw that uh, he invited everyone to him, the living water, the fount of living water. And we saw that that living water uh, was typified in the wilderness as God brought forth the water from the rock. And now in John 8, he is professing to be the light of the world. He is the pillar of fire that leads the people of God in, into their inheritance. On top of that, he says, Ego a me, I am. I am the light of the world. He is identifying with the, with the God of the burning bush, the one who revealed himself to Moses when Moses said, what is your name? And he says, I am, that I am. And so with these words... Verse 12, we see a scandal taking place with these Pharisees. And what we're going to see here in this first part of this passage is to reject the light, though, is to remain in darkness. To reject the light that Jesus professes to be is to remain in darkness. And look with me in verse 13, the rest of the story. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, where did this come from? 
Well, in chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus had said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. The Pharisees remember him saying that. And the Pharisees are calling him out. But what did Jesus mean in that context? What he meant was that if my testimony originates with me, if my witness of myself is disconnected from the Father, then I am false, that I'm not true. And so they're taking him out of context. So here's the question. How will Jesus respond to this? He's going to give them three reasons why his witness is true. And the first we see in verse 14. His testimony about himself is true because it's based on firsthand knowledge of heaven. Firsthand knowledge of heaven. Look with me in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Now, Jesus in six different verses in this passage, in so many words, is going to say that he came from heaven. That means that's an important concept, an important truth in this passage. Jesus came from heaven. He, he did not derive, he was not born as we are. He was not conceived as we are. Uh, we are conceived in sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it was God putting on human flesh. He came from heaven. Our origin is here. His origin is from heaven. We're going to see this six times in this passage. And so Jesus responds to them essentially here by saying, as the one who has come from heaven, who has come from God, and is going back to God, their failure to see him as the Christ, as the light of the world, is proof that they are walking in darkness. Even these religious and moral people. And what makes Jesus' testimony so valid is something that they were completely ignorant of. He'd been sent by God from heaven, and he would go back shortly. Now, we need to understand, this comes in a context. These Pharisees knew their Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh, the Jews. But they knew their Old Testament better than we know any book we've ever read. Uh, in fact, uh, many Pharisees likely had the entire Tanakh memorized. At least the Torah, Genesis through De Deuteronomy. And, and what is the Old Testament about? The Old Testament was written primarily so that the Jews would have and should have recognized the Son of God when he came. The Old Testament is about Redeemer sending. But the darkness of their self-righteousness had blinded them. It's a problem today. Matthew Henry writes, he is the light of the world and it is the property of light to be self-evidencing. It was self-evident that he's the light. It's self-evident that he was the son of God. Self-authenticating. This is utterly and absolutely true. And by the way, that's why when you evangelize, and I pray that each one of us have opportunities regularly 
to evangelize. Just pray the Lord would open up doors. Okay, not all of us are gifted. I'm not a gifted evangelist. There are people in this church who have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Evangelism is hard for me. I, I'm not naturally gifted. I'm not, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but we have the responsibility to evangelize. And when you evangelize, you need to remember Jesus does not need defending. Just proclaim him and let the light shine. The light shines when you faithfully proclaim him. I mean, think about this. At the burning bush, God, Yahweh, did not give proofs that he was God in the burning bush. What did he do? He just let, he simply burned with divine light. That's what he did. Remember, these Pharisees are standing in the presence of the Son of God. And, and just as we, we evangelize and we fo uh, faithfully proclaim the gospel, it's as if Christ himself is coming to bear in every evangelistic encounter. And so the hearer has a responsibility to respond in those particular cases, just like we see here. As Richard Phillips asserts, imagine someone hearing Luciano Pavarotti sing on an opera and then demand to see his musical credentials. Imagine Albert Einstein's being asked to present his college transcripts before lecturing on physics. Well, Jesus has professed he is the light of the world. He has professed he has come from heaven and he is going back to heaven, going back to God. And it was self-evidencing. And they should have seen him and beheld him. The second reason he gives is why his testimony is true is seen in verse 15. His, his testimony, Jesus himself is impartial. Look with me in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. By the way, that, that speaks to all of us. Our judgments are usually based on superficial, carnal assessments of things. Uh, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Because they rejected the light of the world, uh, the Pharisees were darkened in their understanding. Your, your mind, your, your understanding, your thoughts are darkened by sin. That's our natural condition. And because they rejected him as the light, they remained in darkness. Now listen. Yes, light is undefeated against darkness. Light overturns the darkness. It, that's a picture of sovereign grace, okay? But here we are facing what we would call compatibilism. That God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. When darkness persists, it's not that the light has not been effectual. When darkness persists, God is not to be blamed. The one who loves the darkness is to be blamed. And they were in the darkness because of their love for their darkness and their sin. And as John 12, 34 will tell us later, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. That is where you are. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not know where you go. You are in the darkness. And in their darkness, they judged him by their darkened understanding. On the other hand, Jesus says, 
I pass judgment on no one. Now, it is easy to take this out of context. You speak to someone, and uh, we, we, we were out evangelizing the night. If you met some, uh, a guy who's a universalist, he, he goes to the universal church, and, and in the universalist church, everybody's going to ultimately go to heaven. No one's going to be judged. Well, that's taking the Scripture out of context. Jesus does not say here he would never be a judge. In fact, John elsewhere, the one who wrote this passage, will write the book of the Revelation. Short time later, in fact. And in Revelation 19, 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. I love that. Jesus' name. He's called Faithful, and he's called True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So in his first advent, what we celebrate at Christmas, the first appearing of the Son of God, he did not come to judge, he came to save. So he will, in this first appearing, reserve judgment. That's what he's saying. But the third reason that Jesus' witness is true is seen in verse 16. His witness is verified by the Father. Look with me in verses 16 to 18. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So there is an inseparable operation in the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are on the same page and in all works. And so even if he did judge, his judgments would not be independent of the Father. There would be complete agreement. Verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So he's referring here to Deuteronomy 16, or verse 6, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where the law says that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. And so he says, um, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so Jesus is asserting here, based on Deuteronomy 17 and 19, that he is not a lone witness. The other witness is the Father. Of course, we saw in chapter 5 that the witness of the Father consists in, first of all, the witness of John the Baptist. The Father's witness was communicated through John the Baptist preaching the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've also seen that the Father's witness is expressed through Jesus' sign miracles. All of these miracles that these Pharisees were very aware of, perhaps had even been eyewitnesses of, witnessed to who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. He did not do them in a corner. He did not do them... Uh, without the eyes of many watching. And we've also seen that the Old Testament scriptures witness of God, or, or, of Jesus. Remember when he said in John uh, 5 uh, that Moses bear witness about me in John 5. So all of these are expressions of the Father confirming Jesus' own testimony about himself. Well, notice in verse 19, they said to him, therefore, 
Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. It's hard to understand or know exactly if they're being sarcastic or if they're really confused here. One thing is for sure, they're in the dark. He's already claimed that he came from the Father. And in John 5, we saw that that was grounds to put him to death. That they, they felt that that was blasphemy. But we don't really know what their motivation here is, but Jesus doesn't respond to their question. I think that's another important um, example for us when we're evangelizing. Sometimes people you're evangelizing will try to change the subject or, or try to take you down a rabbit trail. Jesus did not respond to their question, but what he does say is, you don't know him. He got straight to the point. You don't know him. Now, it's hard to express how scandalous and remarkable that is. The Jews, and especially the Pharisees, found their identity in being born the children of God. That was, if you go there today, an unconverted Jew finds his or her identity in being the chosen people, the children of God. And here Jesus is saying to these moral and religious people, you don't know the Father because you don't know me. You don't know him because you don't follow me. There are so many people that are, that are satisfied with morality and satisfied with being an upstanding citizen, of staying out of trouble. And Jesus is coming after that. You're still in a dire state. If you don't follow him, you're still in the darkness if you don't follow him. Well, note verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he had taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, if you read verse 19, you think he's in a whole lot of trouble. And he is. He's going to be arrested six months later. But at this very moment... Just a day or two after the Feast of Tabernacles, it says no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the third of nine references concerning Jesus' hour. The first three, and this is the third of those three, all say that his hour had not yet come. We saw that his hour had to be at the time of the Feast of Passover because he was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Six months later, that would come. The last six of the nine references to the hour would come six months later when it says his hour had come. Now, what is the hour referring to? It's referring to his death. It's referring to his burial and his resurrection from the grave. So the height of his humiliation where he is judged on a cross, a, a Roman cross where he takes our sin in, uh, in full and he is judged for our sin as our substitute. And then he's buried and then he's raised from the grave that we might have justification, that we might have pardon. That's the hour that John is referring to. But this hour was determined by God and not by Jesus' opponents. And I find that highly encouraging. Because even though we have not been called to the same 
vocation as Jesus, we have the same God. And God, who was sovereign over the days and even the death of Christ, the very day of the death of Christ, is sovereign over us as well. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without divine permission. So that's the first part of this passage where we see the Pharisees persist in their darkness because they persist in their unbelief towards Jesus. And that is the condition of all humanity. Uh, Humanity remains in darkness. You remain in darkness until you submit to the light. And now in the second part of this passage, we come to a warning. It's one of the most horrifying warnings in all the Bible. The second part of this passage will teach us to reject the light, yes, is to remain in darkness. That's the first part of the passage. But to reject the light is to die in sin. Look with me in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So again, he he continues to remind them that he is going away. Again, Jesus says for the third time that he's going away. But here, he adds a bone-chilling warning. And you will die in your sins. In fact, we're going to see this warning again in verse 24. Here, it says, you will die in your sin. Notice, it's singular. And in verse 24, he says, you will die in your sins, plural. Now, is that just a typo? No. Sin is singular here. Sins, plural, verse 24. They essentially, they travel together, sin and sins, but they're distinct. Your sin is your disposition, your nature. Our natural nature is is self-love, self-worship. That's our sinful condition. Our condition is our sin condition. As Paul would describe it, we're under sin, singular. Everything we think is fallen. Everything we feel is fallen. Everything we're devoted to is fallen, okay? Because we're under sin. Sin, we're under the dominion of sin. That is our problem. We live in darkness. But as we'll see in verse 24, we will also die in our sins, plural. The sins are the apples on the fruit tree. The sins are the fruit of our disposition. So the sins are what we do. Our transgressions we commit, our sin is our condition. And Jesus is making a distinction here. He says, you will die in your sin. And when you think about our human condition, it is horrifying. That I mean, it's actually tragic. Uh, the human condition being such that not only are you in a sin condition, that you can only express what your condition is. Sins, transgressions. And that condition without Jesus will not bode well in the day of judgment. It won't bode well for you, nor would it bode well for these Pharisees. 
James Montgomery Boyce tells of an evangelist he knew who preached a sermon on Amos 4.12, and the name of the sermon was, Prepare to Meet Your God. The first point of his sermon was this, the greatest reason why you should prepare to meet your God is that you must meet your God. We will meet our God. You can deny that, just like you can deny gravity. But step off, a, step off a building. Your denial of gravity does not dismiss the reality of it. There is a God who created you, and you are accountable to him. And without Jesus, you will die in your sin. That's as important a truth as there is on the planet. Unless your, your case is settled out of court through repentance and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must appear before the judgment bar of God in your sins. The burden of your sins not rolled away. Now think about this. There are only two ways to die according to Scripture. The first way is you may die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13 asserts, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That's one way to die. Now what does that mean? That means that when you trust Jesus, his righteousness covers your unrighteousness. When you trust Jesus, his blood cleanses your unrighteousness. His righteousness covers us, his blood covers us. And so to die in the Lord is to be covered. Your shame, your guilt, your sin, your sins covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one way to die. The second way to die, Jesus tells us here, in your sin. In your sin. Only one of two ways. There's not a third way. To die in sin means that when you die, all of your transgressions, all of your guilt, all of your shame will be exposed and be held against you in the day of judgment. And these Pharisees would die in their sin while they were looking for another Messiah that fit their conception of Messiah. How tragic. Well, notice in verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, so still in the dark, the Jews ask this question. It's hard to tell if they're being facetious. Is he just going to commit suicide? Is that what he's talking about? I think they knew better than that. They were being sarcastic. I have a feeling that they felt somewhat uncomfortable. And sometimes when you get uncomfortable, you, 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 you say, you know, nonsensical things just to cover up your embarrassment. Well, notice in verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. Now, I want you to remember, he can say that to you too. Uh, Pharisees are not of a different family than we are. We're all of the family of Noah and Adam. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, there's the plural, 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Literally, unless you believe that I am. The he is not there in the original. Unless you believe ego me, Unless you believe I am. Jesus is claiming once again to be the Lord of the burning bush. He is claiming to be equal in essence and power and glory with the Father. And the Pharisees, like the rest of humanity, were from below. Now, before the fall, there was nothing wrong with being from below. Being from below just meant that we were, cre- were born creaturely. We're born finite, but we had an original righteousness. But after the fall, when sin entered the world, to be born from below is a bad deal because you're born in a state of sin and rebellion. And Jesus says he was born from above. He's from above. And that was why it was so important that he be virginally conceived so that he would not inherit Adam's sin. He was not from this world. He was from above. And when he returned to heaven, they would not be able to follow him there. They would not be able to find him. And in verse 24, we see him repeat that warning as a result. Now, notice in verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. So Jesus has publicly declared thus far that he's the son of man. Son of man language is picked up from Daniel 7. He's the son of man who's going to destroy the four beasts that come from the sea. He's going to restore dominion. He's going to restore order in the universe. He's going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's the son of God. He's already declared himself to be the son of God. He's declared himself to be from God, from heaven. He's declared to be the bread of life. He has declared himself to be the light of the world. He has made himself known. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He's on the same page with the Father. Uh, He had much to say in judgment of them, but his words would be in accord, accordance with the Father. He is on the same page with the Father. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And I think here Jesus gives us a model for how to deal with unbelievers, how to deal with those who lack spiritual understanding. In a lot of churches today, in fact, some of the fastest growing churches what preachers do is they, they dumb down the message and they water it down lest they be offensive, okay? And, and oftentimes the intention is, is, is noble. They're trying to meet people where they are and they don't want to turn them off. And so they water it down so they'll come back next week and, and they have a big picture view of things. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. For one, it does not follow Jesus' own approach to reaching unbelievers. There's nothing dumbed down about what he says next. In fact, he's about to ramp it up. Notice in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus is hearkening back to Isaiah 52, 13. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. All four of these songs, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, 53, and Isaiah 50, those are the four servant songs. All of them refer to this Messiah who would come and suffer as our substitute. And in that fourth servant song, in Isaiah 52, 13, here's what it says. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And when you look at the context, it's clearly speaking of some kind of substitutionary suffering because Isaiah will tell us he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the one that Isaiah says will be high and lifted up. Isaiah may be speaking greater than he knows, but here's what Isaiah is saying. One day, the Messiah who's gonna come and save his people is gonna be high and lifted up. He's going to die in a state where he is high and lifted up. We know that to be the cross. He was high and lifted up on a cross, but there's a double meaning. But it will be through his cross that he will be exalted. That's what I, uh, Jesus is saying to these people, these Pharisees. There are two other times in John where Jesus speaks of being lifted up. And both have a dual meaning. He will be lifted up in crucifixion. He will be exalted in glorification. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 14. We'll see it again in chapter 12, verse 32. In those other two references, those who would do the lifting are not mentioned. Here, Jesus tells us who will do the lifting. The ones who would lift him up the ones who would be responsible for his cross are these Pharisees, are these religious people. And when they have lifted him up, he will satisfy God's wrath on sin. He will be buried and God will raise him in glory. Now, we don't know exactly what the glory here is or the exaltation here that he's referring to because we know that his exaltation speaks uh, of not only his resurrection, but his ascension and his, his future return in glory to judge the living and the dead. But essentially what Jesus is saying is, by then it will be too late for you because you have refused, you have refused my revelation to yourself. You've continued to persist in your disobedience. There's a kind of exposure to revelation where you get hardened to it. And that's a warning to people who regularly go to church. You can go week after week, and if you walk out of here and you didn't respond, it's not that nothing happened. Something happened. You cannot be exposed to the Word of God without something happening. You will either be softened or hardened, but you will not remain the same. 
These Pharisees have been exposed time and time again to Jesus' sign miracles and to his teachings. And they've continued to be hardened. And Jesus is saying it's going to be too late one day. Well, notice verse 29 as we come to the end. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Such wonderful news for every sinner who would believe. Because Jesus always pleases the Father. There is hope for all of us who do not please the Father. His pleasing the Father was a part of his plan to save us. His pleasing the Father was his fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law that the law demands for all of us. He pleased the Father. And if you are Christ, that is you belong to Christ, you are in Christ, you have trusted in Christ, the Father has credited, has imputed to you Christ's life of pleasing the Father. God treats Jesus, think about this, in this great exchange. When Jesus would go to the cross six months later, God would treat Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life. And you know what your life looks like. You know the sins. You don't know every sin you've committed. There are unintentional sins. But God, on the cross, would treat Jesus as if he had lived your life. And he would judge Jesus accordingly for your sin. That's what we mean by substitution. And then... God will turn right around and treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. That's the gospel. His righteousness, his pleasing the Father credited to you. And because we are in Jesus, we are in Christ, the Father will never leave us because he will not leave the Son. That's what he says there in verse 29. And what's true of Jesus is now true of us. That is the gospel for every believer here. The alternative is to die in your sin. It's to die in your sin. It's the greatest tragedy. Throughout the country yesterday, people were mourning the loss of their football team. When their team lost, they were mourning. They woke up this morning depressed. That's completely irrelevant. It's a tragedy to die in your sin. And Jesus is offering life. He's offering light. He's offering the forgiveness of sins. So as Adam and our musicians come forward, we would ask you, if you have not yet been saved, to respond to Christ. There's nothing magical about walking this aisle. We know that. My goodness. You could be saved in your, your seat. You could be saved at lunch today, contemplating the gospel. But we would love to talk to you. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to answer any questions that you might have about what it means to follow Christ as the light of the world. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.